Didn't they do a fabulous job, huh? Wow. Open your Bibles to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. If you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, there are Bibles available for you to use. They're in the pew rack in front of you or perhaps under your seat if you're in the front row. You take out one of those Bibles and open it up to page 1085, 1085, you'll arrive at the 20th chapter of the Gospel of John. John chapter 20. I want to travel back in time with you this morning, about 2,000 years, to that first Easter morning. We are going to need to bridge some significant gaps that exist, not just 2,000 years, but issues of culture and geography. We're going to go back 2,000 years to that first Easter morning and visit the empty tomb. It is an absolutely indisputable fact that the crucifixion of Jesus Christ shattered the faith of His small band of followers. During the Last Supper, just prior to His arrest, they had been arguing among themselves as to who was greatest in the kingdom. Who would occupy the seats of honor and the kingdom of Christ when He brought His kingdom to this earth? They had pledged to Him their very lives to defend Him. We will die for you, they said. Yet before that night was through, they had all fled His side. Jesus Himself had prophesied this, quoting Zechariah, saying, Strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. And so there, at his cross, he was alone. Standing at a distance, there was one disciple, John, accompanied by a few women. But the rest had been so completely demoralized by the events that had transpired, they were nowhere to be found. As dawn begins to break that first Easter morning, a few women make their way to the tomb. It's dark, but they are compelled to go there by their love for Christ. They're going to anoint His body. Now, we need to just say something here about Jewish burial to try to understand what's going on. We here in the United States for the most part, bury in the ground in a grave. That's not so in that part of the world. Burial in that part of the world was typically done in what was called a sepulcher or a tomb. It could be a natural cave in the various limestone formations or it could be something that was man-made. But it would be carved out in the rock, relatively small place. Depending on the size and wealth of the family, there would be one or two shelves carved into the rock in that place where they would lay the body of their deceased loved ones. 
Later they would return after decomposition had taken its toll and they would gather the bones and put them into a small box or ossuary and move it to the back corner of the tomb so there'd be room on the shelf for the next member of the family. They had no ability to embalm and so the body had to be buried quickly and they would apply aromatic uh, spices to it in order to, to sort of overcome and mask the smell of death and decay. So these women are headed to this tomb in order to pay last respects, in order to anoint the body of Christ with the various spices, as custom would call. Their trip that first Easter morning sets in motion a series of encounters that by the end of the day will bring every single one of those disciples, save one, face to face with the stark reality that the tomb is empty. Empty. As we trace through this together this morning in John chapter 20, we're going to see three dramatically different reactions to that empty tomb. So that we will examine our own response to this amazing reality. Three dramatic reactions. Blindness, bewilderment, or belief. We find all three that first morning. Now, as we compare the four gospel accounts of that first Easter morning, there's some very complicated and confusing things going on. Apparently, something like the following occurred. While it was still dark, and the guards, the Roman guards that had been set over the tomb to prevent his disciples from coming and stealing the body away and claiming his resurrection, while they were still there on guard, still dark, an angel of the Lord descended and a severe earthquake occurred and the stone that covered that opening of that tomb was laid flat on its side, revealing the contents of the tomb. This happened not so Christ could get out of that tomb, but so that the world could look into that tomb and see there was no one there. A little bit later, just before sunrise, while it is still dark, as I said, a group of women set out for the tomb and they are carrying spices. They intend to further anoint the body of Christ. It was quickly and rapidly taken down from the cross and put into that tomb because of the Sabbath. And so they hadn't rendered final preparations in the way that they would want to do. So they were now the Sabbath was over. They were on their way back early Sunday morning to finish the job. Included in that group of women was a lady by the name of Mary Magdalene. She was one whom Jesus had cast seven demons out of. She loved the Lord Jesus Christ. Evidently compelled by her love, she ran on ahead of the others and arrived at the tomb first. She could see that the stone had rolled away and she immediately left and ran off to tell Peter and John, his disciples. By the time the rest of the group of women 
had arrived at the tomb, the sun had already risen sufficiently. Mary didn't hear the message that those ladies heard because in her haste to run and tell others, she didn't hang around long enough to hear the angelic message that all the rest of those women heard. The angel telling them to go to the disciples and tell them that He is risen and that He will meet them in Galilee as He had promised them. So with that as the background, look now with me at John chapter 20 and we will pick up John's narrative of those events of that first morning. In the process, we will look at Mary, Peter, and John and see, as I said, blindness, bewilderment, and belief. First, blindness displayed by Mary. Verse 1, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came, to the, came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. And so she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid Him. Mary sees the stone rolled away from the tomb and lying flat on the ground and her immediate reaction is that grave robbers have come and have ransacked the tomb. She doesn't know who has done it. Notice she says they have taken him away. She doesn't know who to point to, but somebody in her mind has come and has, has violated the tomb and taken him away. It's obvious to her somebody has stolen the body. In her distress that first morning, as she got to the tomb, as the scene played out in front of her, she was unable to contemplate the possibility of a resurrection. It didn't even dawn on her that He wasn't there because He had raised from the dead. Instead, her conclusion is someone has stolen His body. And so she runs off to tell Peter and John the news. Filling in the white spaces here a little bit. And Peter and John set off back to the tomb and Mary following behind. We pick up her Story just a little bit further down here in chapter 20, verse 11. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she beheld two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, because they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid Him. Earlier it was dark. Mary hadn't really examined the tomb for herself. And so this, now the sun is up, it's risen. She's able to examine the scene for herself. And she looks in and sees these two angels sitting in there where the body of Jesus once lay. But in her emotional state of despair, her thinking is still unable to contemplate the reality, even the possibility of a resurrection. She's still looking on the horizontal and the only thing she can see in her blindness is that someone has stolen the body. Grave robbers have been there. The possibility of resurrection still hasn't entered her mind. Look again, verse 13. Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know 
where they have laid him. He's still dead in her thinking. She's looking for a body. She's still looking for a body. Notice the angels question her, verse 13. Woman, why are you weeping? Their tone is gentle. But there's still a rebuke embodied in that question. Why are you weeping? You should not have expected to find him here. You should have known better. Down to verse 14. When she had said this, she turned around and beheld Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Same question. Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Still blind. Still looking for a body. Still unable to penetrate the mystery that is in front of her. When Jesus hears the Master's voice, the text tells us she thinks it's the gardener. She turns around to address Him. and At first blush here, His questions seem to be the kinds of questions that a concerned stranger might ask. But on further reflection, they're really a call to Mary. They're a summons to Mary to consider the evidence before her and in light of all that she knows to be true to arrive at a true assessment of what has happened here this morning. Verse 15, Woman, why are you weeping? Why are you weeping? You should not have expected to find Him here. Why are you so consumed with sorrow? He told you He would rise from the dead. He predicted His resurrection over and over and over again. Why are you looking for a body. Whom are you seeking? Verse 15. Whom are you seeking? In other words, Mary, what kind of Messiah are you looking for? Who am I? Who am I? Your devotion to me is unquestionable. It is a it is a powerful, deep, and emotional devotion to me, but your, but your estimation of who I really am is way too small. Way too small. Some think Mary is blinded by her grief, thus unable to recognize who Jesus was. Notice it says she supposes Him to be the gardener. Maybe her eyes are so swollen with tears and she's just unable in the light, we don't know, to determine who He really is. Or, or maybe there was a supernatural reason that prevented Mary from identifying Jesus. 
certainly later appearances of the resurrected Christ to his disciples. There were times they were unable to identify, at least initially, who he was. So it could be supernatural. It could be natural. We don't really know why. But in that moment in time, she doesn't know who he is. She thinks he's a gardener. She's asking for help to go get that body. Maybe the gardener took the body away. I mean, after all, he was buried in the tomb of a rich man and he died a common criminal's death. Maybe it was just a gardener tidying up things and saying, oh, this, this body doesn't belong here. We'll, we'll go put that in the grave of the common people. It's all Mary can think about. She's entirely on the horizontal. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. She had evidently turned back away from him, again, supposing him to be the gardener. And when he speaks, she turns back around. That's what it indicates. Now, the scriptures don't give us a tone of voice that Jesus used to address her here. But they do indicate that he called to her in her native tongue and by her native name, literally Miriam. Miriam. And at that moment, the spiritual lights came on. And she says, Rabboni, teacher, I see. She falls at his feet. She grabs hold of his ankles, perhaps. And she begins to worship. Verse 17, Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. At this point, Jesus gives her two commands. Two commands. The first, stop clinging to me. Stop clutching me, Mary, as if I'm going to disappear. This is the time for sharing the good news. Go and tell His disciples. I'm not your private fulfillment of all your hopes and dreams. I am the resurrected One who is to be proclaimed throughout the earth. Go and tell my disciples, I am resurrected. And I am returning to my Father. And notice what he says here. I ascend to my Father and your Father. My God and your God. He's saying, Mary, the relationship has entirely changed. It is a changed relationship. I am the resurrected one and through me all of my disciples will now enter into a new relationship with the God and Father, the Creator of the universe. A relationship in which I am a son by nature, but they will become sons by adoption. Do you see it? I ascend to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. What's Mary going to do? Verse 18. Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And then he said these things to her. Mary's 
blind until Christ opens your eyes to see. The next reaction is that of Peter. Verse 3. Peter's reaction is bewilderment. Mary was blind. Peter is bewildered. He's bewildered. Verse 3. Peter therefore went forth after Mary had come and told he and John. He therefore went forth and the other disciple. That other disciple, by the way, is John, the writer of this gospel account. Peter went forth with the other disciple and they were going to the tomb. And the two were running together and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. This is a scene of action. This is an action scene. When Peter and John hear Mary's report that someone has stolen the body, they set off to investigate this. They set out together. The picture is that they're walking briskly, briskly walking, and then one of them walks a little bit faster than the other one, and then the other one walks a little bit faster, and then one starts to trot, and then the other one trots, then one breaks into a full run, and then the other one breaks into a full run, until it's an all-out sprint to the tomb. Well, John is faster than Peter. He's a better sprinter. Maybe that's because he's younger, I don't know. But in any case, John outruns Peter and he arrives first at the tomb. When he arrives, he's hesitant. He's hesitant. Perhaps he's hesitant out of deference to Peter, who was the leader of the apostolic band. So maybe it's just purely a matter of deference that, that he, even though he outran him, he's going to wait until Peter catches up. He's not going to blunder in himself. But he bends over, he looks in. He bends over and he looks in and he sees the linen wrappings. Right? Verse 5, stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Seeing the wrappings is evidence enough for John that, that no one has stolen the body. It's obviously not grave robbers. He rules that out immediately. Grave robbers wouldn't have left the wrappings. These linen wrappings were laced with very expensive spices. In fact, just a little earlier, John 19, verse 39, we're told a hundred pounds weight of myrrh and aloes. Two very aromatic resins that are somewhat rare in that part of the world and were highly sought after to anoint bodies for burial. A hundred pounds weight. And what would, they would do is, as they were wrapping the body in linen, they, or these linen strips like bandages, they would pour alternate amounts of spices in there and then continue the wrapping process. And what would happen over time is, it, without getting too graphic, it would all sort of melt together and harden into a kind of a hard case around the body. It's clear no one stole the body. No one stole the body. They wouldn't have left the wrappings and spices. The most valuable thing was what he was buried in. Well, by this time, Peter arrives. Peter arrives. 
And in keeping with Peter's impulsive nature, he blunders right into the tomb. I don't think he even slowed down. Maybe he bounced his forehead off the back wall. I don't know. But he went into the tomb. Verse 6, Peter, Simon Peter therefore also came following him and entered the tomb and he beheld the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Peter goes right into the tomb and looks around carefully. Carefully. He's taking it all in. Literally, the Greek word is theoreo, and it, it means to behold or to observe the contents of the tomb as opposed to merely just looking. John looked, blepo, different verb. Peter carefully observed what was going on inside that tomb. He sees the linen strips. And his very close inspection of the contents reveals not just the linen wrappings, but the face cloth as well. Do you see that? Verse 7. The face cloth. Now, John is very, very particular to point out to us at this point that, that Peter observes the interior contents of the tomb and that it's in a very orderly condition. Very, very organized, very orderly condition in there. The, the linen wrappings are not strewn about, but they're evidently lying in exactly the place where the body was, lie, was laid. That means on one of those ledges, I told you, was carved out in the stone. The scene is not chaotic or confused at all. Something very purposeful has transpired inside this tomb. Peter also observes the face cloth, sidarion. It's called a handkerchief, some translations. It's a cloth much like what we would call a handkerchief, square piece of cloth. And what they would do with that is they would sort of roll it and they would tie it under the chin and up over the top of the head. And the reason they would do that was to keep the person's jaw from falling open in death. So this is the, the face cloth that's designed to keep the mouth closed. This face cloth is neatly rolled up and placed by itself, we're told. Now, exactly what Peter saw, we can't say with any certainty. We have only the descriptions recorded for us here. But one thing we know is that no human being that has been wrapped in linen bandages round and round and round, arms and legs, could possibly slip out of them without disturbing them. That's just not possible. They would have to be unwound or cut through. And so when observed, they would appear as a, a pile at best or strewn all over the place at worst. And yet we're given a, an account here that says they are very, in a very orderly fashion, just lying there. Exactly like they would be when they were wrapped around the body. No grave robber did this. No wounded man managed to unwrap himself and somehow crawl out. There is only one possible explanation. He had passed right through them. And they're left 
in that orderly fashion. The tomb is empty, Peter. It's empty. You've examined every crevice. It's empty. What do you make of it? What do you make of it, Peter? Luke's Gospel, Luke 24 and verse 12, gives us the answer to that. It says, Peter went away to his home wondering at what had happened. Peter took it all in. He carefully observed the evidence. He processed it all and he was bewildered by it. He was unable to arrive at a conclusion. He couldn't quite figure it all out. He had seen the evidence. The tomb is clearly empty. It was obviously not the work of grave robbers. At least three times, as is recorded for us in the Gospels, Matthew 16, Matthew 17, Matthew 20, Jesus had openly predicted His resurrection from the dead. Yet Peter can't pull the pieces together. Can't figure it out. For Peter, it's still a bewilderment. It's a hidden picture. Maybe you've seen those hidden pictures. There's one that, depending how you look at it, it's a picture of a beautiful woman, or if you look at it another way, it's a picture of an old hag. For Peter, that's what this looks like. He can't figure it out. He's looking, he's seeing, but he can't come up with it. He's like some of you. Wandering around your home looking for your glasses. And they're sitting right on top of your head. I can only say that because I wear glasses too. Mary was blind. Peter is bewildered. Our last response. Belief. Belief. John believes, verse 8. And so the other disciple, who had first come to the tomb, entered then also, and he saw and believed. John is emboldened now by Peter's entrance into the tomb, and so he enters himself. Horao, he, he sees with understanding, the text says. He now sees with understanding. Before he merely noticed uh, linen strips, now walking in, taking in all of the evidence, just like Peter had done, the lights are on for him. Peter's bewildered. John exercises faith and believes. Believes what? Verse 8, so the other disciple who had first come to the tomb entered then also. He saw and believed. Believed what? Context here, there's only one possibility. There is only one possibility in the context of this narrative for what it could be that John believed. He had managed by the grace of God to penetrate the deeper meaning of the empty tomb. John sees resurrection. That's what he believed. 
John sees resurrection. Now, he is still clueless or ignorant as to the hows and whys of it all. In fact, later he, along with the rest of the disciples of Jesus, will be rebuked by the resurrected Lord for being hard of heart and doubting. But fundamentally, John believed. His faith is weak, but it's real. It's real. Reflecting back years later, when John wrote this gospel, he attributes his weak faith and Peter's bewilderment to the fact that they were biblically ignorant. You see that, verse 9? For as yet they did not understand the Scripture that he must rise again from the dead. With 60 years, the benefit of 60 years hindsight, when John writes this, he looks back on it all. He says we, we should have We should have seen it more clearly than we did. It was there for us in the Scriptures all along. But they'd missed it. They didn't understand what had been written for them. Beloved, the suffering, dying Savior, Jesus of Nazareth, took on Himself the guilt of the shame, the penalty was due the sin of His people. All of their accumulated unrighteousness, all their inherent sin, for we are born corrupt and we act it out each and every day of our lives. All of that corruption, all of that open rebellion against our Creator was poured out in the Son of God. He hung on that cross and died, absorbing the wrath that was justly due those who will believe. His cross was our cross. His death was our death. And since the righteous Son of God died a death He did not deserve, He could not remain dead. Death had no hold on Him. It had no hold. He must rise again. Do you see it? Verse 9. They did not yet understand the Scripture that He must rise again from the dead. It could not contain Him. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. Some people are blinded by grief. Some people are blinded by grief. They cannot see. Mary was such a one. Others are blinded to the reality by their willful refusal to believe doesn't appear in this narrative here, but it certainly appears throughout the New Testament. Those of the Jewish authorities refused to believe. 
In fact, they bribed the guards to say that while the guards were asleep, someone came and stole the body, which is always fascinating to me, because if you were asleep, how would you know someone came and stole the body? So there are those who are blind willfully, and there are those who are blind by grief. Let me speak a moment to those blinded by grief. Where do you go when life is unraveling? When it's all fallen apart, where do you go? See, Mary could only see on the horizontal. And the conclusion that she drew drove her deep into despair. All she could think of in her loss, her grief, was someone stole the body. When death stalks our door. And if it hasn't stalked your door yet, it will. When death stalks our door, we need a firm and abiding hope in the bodily resurrection. For that will see us through. Mary responded with blindness. Peter responded with bewilderment. Peter's eyes weren't strictly on the horizontal. They were slightly above the horizon. But they certainly weren't lifted heavenward. The answer for Peter was just out of reach. Just beyond his fingertips. It was out there, but he just couldn't get his hands around it. He could plainly see the tomb was empty. And it was plain and clear that no one had stolen the body, but the how and the why and the what does it mean, he just couldn't get it. What do you make of the empty tomb this morning? What do you make of the empty tomb? How do you explain it? Is it a puzzle for you? You know, a puzzle where you can't seem to find the edge pieces. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, until you find the edge pieces, you can't build the puzzle, right? Every puzzle maker knows that. Peter can't find the edges. So the puzzle is just a bunch of jumbled pieces. Is that you this morning? Is it just a pile of pieces that you can't, you can't put it together? You can't make it work? Or maybe you have faith. Maybe, like John, you believe. But your faith is weak, tenuous. It's like a fragile sapling, not a mighty oak. Well, for John and the others, their initial tender, hesitant faith began to grow deeper, stronger. The roots went down and the branches up until they were willing to take on the Roman world, to die rather than to deny that He has risen from the dead. That frightened band would turn the world upside down 
with the incredible news that the tomb is empty. Christ has risen from the dead. He is the glorious promised one. Messiah of God, Savior of the world. What will be your response this morning? You can't walk away from the empty tomb without some conclusion. To not decide is to decide. You came here this morning for something. You came here for a reason. You were looking for something. You were looking for something. Those disciples went to the tomb. They were looking for something as well. What they found there transformed and revolutionized their lives. What about you? What about you this morning? Will you walk away in blindness? Will you go out the doors still bewildered, unable to fit it all together? Another Easter come and gone. Still don't really get it, what it's all about. Or will you, like John, exercise very simple faith? Christ the Lord has risen today. Let me pray. Our Father, the Scriptures are abundantly clear that death could not hold Your Son. That He went to that cross and to that tomb not because of any sin within Himself, but because of the sin of His people. That He might be punished for their iniquity and they might be credited with His righteousness and thus suited fitted and prepared to enter into Your presence eternally. The Scriptures are also abundantly clear, our Father, that because He died not for His own sin, but for the sin of His people, death could not hold Him. The grave could not contain Him. That He bursts the bonds of death. He is the firstborn of the dead. And we who by faith have become united to Him will live forevermore with His resurrection power. Oh God, work in our hearts today. Oh God, do not let us leave this place this morning unchanged by what we have heard. For we can all find ourselves in this story somewhere. This account relates our Father to us. May Your Holy Spirit apply it. Drive it deep. That You would glorify Yourself. Please extend Your mercy today to save. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.